Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Recorded Friday, December the 4th, 2015, this is the Western Devs Podcast. In this week's episode, the devs discuss the future of computing. Boy, look here, we got something for you. Yeah! Hi there. I guess today we're going to talk about computing futures in our weekly Western Devs podcast. And just to kind of define it and give some context around what we're talking about, we're sort of interested in, you know, what's coming up next. What's the next big thing that's going to happen in the wonderful world of software development? Um, You know, initially when desktops first came out kind of mid to late 70s, it took about 20 years, give or take, for that technology to penetrate into common everyday usage. And then, you know, World Wide Web, that was kind of invented in around 93 or so with Tim Berners-Lee. And that took, I guess, being generous, maybe six six to 10 years to gain public acceptance. And then mobile is actually truly fascinating because never before in the history of man has a single piece of technology been adopted so quickly. I mean, inside of the span of about four, four years or so, everyone's jumped onto mobile. I mean, you have these like villages in the middle of nowhere. They don't even have electricity, but they have mobile phones and that kind of a thing. And to my way of thinking, when I look at this is it's, it's sort of put us at the cusp of perhaps might, what might be a, a computing revolution. Um, because A, for starters, we have these supercomputers literally sitting in the, pow- in the palm of our hands. Um, and then as well for the hobbyist, you have things like Arduino and Raspberry Pi and that kind of a thing that make it very easy for a tinkerer to prototype and experiment and and build their own electronic devices for for different things. Um, And sort of this is where the IO, you know, the internet of things is is springing from. Uh, And then this is now starting to converge a bit with things like wearables and nearables, where even the fashion industry is now starting to experiment with embedding this technology into your clothing. And, you know, you hear talk of clothing that will change color or, you know, have fancy shimmers or sheens or, you know, jackets that are Wi-Fi hotspots, that kind of a thing. And then to add on to that, you have these seemingly unrelated technologies like 3D printers. I mean, before to create a device, you had to have a lab and a shop and hire a whole bunch of engineers and prototyping and fabrication was expensive. But now with 3D printers, you can do this in your own home. You can buy a 3D printer for a thousand bucks and fabricate things you need. So that's why I sort of say we're, we're possibly on the cusp here of some sort of revolution where anyone and their dog can jump into the computing game and create things new and wonderful. And so I think we had this talk at one of the Prairie Dev conferences and it sort of brought into the questions of, you know, like, so what exactly do people need or what exactly who are people who are interested in this sort of thing? You know, what, what do they need to get into this? And is it all, you know, ponies and unicorns? What, what's, what's the dark side of this? You know, is there problems with privacy? How do we secure the data? That kind of a thing. And what does this have on sort of technologies that have been around for a while, such as virtual reality or even augmented reality? How are these all going to kind of shape and change and modify our industry? So I guess we have our background and our context. Who's got a thought? Let's start with, say, for example, IoT. 
anyone here done anything sort of different, created their own product or their own niche thing that they haven't seen advertised, say, on Amazon or out there on, the, on their favorite web shopping sites? You know, I'll start then. Um, so I think one of the things that's neat about IoT, so I haven't actually built anything especially yet, but I did get involved with IoT uh, just a couple months ago where I was able to buy a Raspberry Pi complete kit for less than $100, which is awesome because now I can start doing this tinkering and, and, and run things like Windows 10 apps and stuff like that on this thing. So the potential is there. So I'm, I'm actually looking to build it as a small uh, miniature gaming device for uh, my kid when she's a little bit older because you can get a cheap little touchscreen for $60 and plug it all together so that she's got a touchscreen and maybe some sort of I can make little memory games or anything like that and just kind of and just kind of give her this little device, essentially a small, cheap tablet that hypothetically could take a bit of a beating. And I'm sure that kind of thing exists. Um, but what's neat about it is that, again, low cost of entry. And I was able to kind of just get all the parts and, again, pick it up for less than 100 and start start working with that. So, I know somebody who used, uh, I don't know if it was a Raspberry Pi or uh, Arduino, but he used it for his garage door. He basically used it to create his own sensor for a garage door to tell when the door was up to turn the light on. Um, that's the sort of thing that I can see Internet of Things being useful. But I think for that, you still need uh, a high degree of technical skill, do you not? To some degree, I mean, like I know in my case, you know, in a previous show we talked about when we talked about the I, uh, about IoT, I made my own little sump pump monitor. You know, it's the code wasn't the problem for me; it was the electronic side of things. Of well, what parts and pieces are there out there that I can use to 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 build this sump pump monitor? And then, you know, a little bit of a experimenting with the electronic side of things. Like, you know, I did burn out the odd sensor here or there because I wired it on backwards and that kind of a thing. But I know in my kid's school, they, for example, have what, you know, they're calling it an, an invention convention or whatever the hell, but it's another word for uh, just a science fair, right? And I actually did pitch the idea to them. Well, let's go on to Instructables and find something with Arduino and do that. And I know one of his friends is he's just a kid, 14 years old kind of a thing. He is technically competent enough to build stuff with Arduino. He actually does stuff with Arduino at 14 years of age. Yeah, he is. But uh, for the average person, you still need to have a level of coding and a level of uh, engineering and a certain uh, level of patience. I think patience is the biggest of those three. I did help uh, to one of the uh, coffee and co meetings that I host came an engineer that was building a remote starter for his car. He was modifying the remote starter, so he would uh, start using wireless. And uh, he, he had no problems with doing that, but he couldn't make it compile the code he got from Google. So he showed me the code, and I commented one line, and he was super happy because he compiled, and that's it. That's all he needed. Can you do that for me, Amir? Sorry? Can you comment out one line of my code and make everything work? Oh, of course. Well, I may comment a few more. But, <laughs> <laughs> but going to what Kyle was saying, I think that th there's also a great opportunity here to, to meet other people and try to join skills uh, w when you don't 
have all of them, right? To to be everything on your own. So let me ask you a question for Tom or anybody, I guess. Then, right? So I, IoT is is you know seems to be taking off like wildfire now. Um, right? We did a whole podcast on this a few months ago, but I struggle to see how it's going to be a, a huge revolution, right? So I imagine in the next five years or so, we're going to see uh, computers and chips popping up in all our devices, getting them all connected to the internet. And I see some value, like on our gift, our last gift podcast, right? I talked about getting um, the August, the uh, smart door lock and the, the Nest thermostat, the smart thermostat. And somebody talked about like connected uh, light bulbs, the Philips Hue, and that's, that's cool stuff. And I can see me having like a more automated home or being able to talk to my car, but I struggle to see how it's going to be a huge revolution in how we live our lives. Like you hear people talking about, you know, putting computers in my fridge and my toaster and stuff like that. And I just don't see how, you know, that's going to make such a huge radical change in how we interact, you know, with the world. So just think about this for a moment, though. One of the the things we're getting out of this is the ability to collect data like we never have, like on a massive scale, never before, like big data run rampant. And so one thing I can sort of see happening is maybe we won't totally make the leap into full artificial intelligence, but maybe it might you might want to call it augmented computing. Like, for example, Amazon already has algorithms out there where they analyze the price of things. And then when you sell things on Amazon, it, you can adjust the price of your product accordingly based on how well it's selling overall or competitors are selling. So I can sort of see this kind of augmented intelligence creeping into programming, into products where certain decisions are going to now all of a sudden be handled by uh, computers or by businesses, for example. So the big data is going to make this leap in terms of research and discovery because we need to figure out how to sort and analyze this big data to make more informed decisions going forward in the future. But we're going to be spending less time worrying about how do we collect this data and process it. It's just here's the data, analyze the trends, and then respond accordingly. But as a regular regular Joe citizen, how is that going to impact me? How am I going to see that as a as a revolution in technology and how I live my life? I think if you're if when we say revolution, if you're sort of thinking in terms of oh, like you know, next year, you know, we're all going to be driving space cars and eating food for pills. I don't think that's that's not the revolution we're talking about. But I think like in say five or ten years from now, you are going to see some changes in how daily life goes. Specific examples would maybe be. Houses may be debatably becoming more more efficient, right? Because now you don't have to set a thermostat or anything like that. You just come home and your house is warm or cold, depending on the season. To go along with that, maybe your heat bill is going to, or your, your energy bill is going to be managed a bit better. Because now you're no longer just setting the thermostat at 25 in the winter and, you know, walking away and leaving your home, your home warm all the time. Now, because your house is a bit more intelligent with how its temperature is being moderated, you're consuming less energy, and that in turn reduces your carbon footprint, and it keeps you all nice and happy with all these green initiatives that are going on, as an example. like Even to that point, you can extend it further uh, and talking about having sensors in all of your appliances. So you could have your fridge then turn itself up or down based on you know, if it senses it needs to be cooler because there's more items in the fridge or or not, if it's emptier, then it, it doesn't need to be at, set at a lower setting. Um, scheduling things so that you can have, you know, anything scheduled. Like we want to, we just bought a new washer and dryer and we were upset because we have so many things automated in our house. And this was one that wasn't available um, to be connected to our network. And we wanted to be able to schedule when 
our laundry started and when the dryer started based on the meter, the meter um, ratings, right? So we wanted yeah. it to run after a certain time so that it would, uh, we could make, make sure that we weren't um, getting a higher, you know, bill for water, for electricity. Um, so that wasn't available, but we do have a delay setting on it, which is fine, but we can't monitor it remotely. And we would love to be able to do that. Uh, and these are things that are coming and it's totally going to change the way that the, your day-to-day life goes without you even realizing it until you're without it. It's kind of like how we had the mobile phones and everyone's like, yeah, this is neat. This is kind of a neat thing to have, but it's not necessary until the, the minute you lose your phone and you feel like you're having a heart attack because your whole life is on that phone and you know you just lost everything. So it's it's one of those things where everyone's thinking, oh, this is kind of a neat to have, but it's not necessary until you get used to it on a day-to-day basis. And then one day if your network fails or, you know, electricity's out, you're going to be like, damn, I, I was so reliant on all these services and now they're, I have to do things manually again, like, like yeah. in the 90s. Or even things like, uh, like payment. Um, I read a story, this was a while ago, but a guy that actually had an RFID chip embedded in him. And in Japan, you can pay at a lot of vending machines and stuff like that with your phone, just with RFID. So literally all this guy has to do to get stuff from vending machines kind of thing is like walk up, walk up and sweep his arm in front of the machine. So it's it's going to be these little things, like these these gradual shifts, these gradual little changes that, you know, at the time, they're not going to seem that significant. But, you know, in like, say, 50 years, when we look back at it, we're going to say, yeah, that actually was kind of revolutionary. I mean, no one looked at the time that the, when the Industrial Revolution started, at the time it was starting, no one looked at it and said, you know, we're at the cusp of a revolution. It was just sort of a, oh, look, we, we found a better way to make clothing, right? We've improved our textile process, our, our textile abilities to make clothes better and cheaper and faster. And that sort of kick-started the whole industrial revolution, right? It brought in all these other things along with it. And so I sort of think that's where we are with computing right now, that it's gotten cheap enough, small enough, and easy enough to prototype that because almost anyone can do it, it's just going to ripple out into everything. Is there a a danger that that's going to um, kind of widen the gap now between people that are um, amenable to these types of changes versus I remember somebody was talking about the nest. They said their wife doesn't touch it because yeah, that's she me. just doesn't know how to. Yeah. So she just doesn't know how it works. So is this going to kind of exacerbate that problem? Almost like a wealth gap for technical knowledge? For sure. It will, for sure. Like, but th- there's no stopping that, right? In, right. in any, every generation is the same. Uh, uh, you could say the same about cell phones or, I don't know, streaming online or whatever. You have the example that we used to that and not everybody jumped into that easily and it's going to happen whether we like it or not. So there's no stopping. But it did happen for mobile to some extent or to a large extent. Like Tom said, there's places without electricity where they have mobile. Yeah, yeah, but but that's different from um, saying it's a generation thing, right? That That's a se- acceptance out of a need and in that case the generation is they 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 really want it it's very useful but if you say uh would, would this widen the gap between uh i don't know maybe not us but around us and uh, the the future 20 years old and people like that that they would just born with this and will run with it with no problems i think it will that there's no stopping it yeah, you know, I think Amir is right. I mean, even with mobile phones, you saw, right? I was, you know, using a smartphone, surfing the internet, doing my email or whatever. You know, my mom didn't understand these newfangled technologies, right? She didn't see the need to surf the internet on her phone. That's changed now, right? My my parents use smartphones, but 
there's definitely that gap for a long time, right? Where kids get this, younger people, technical people get all this technology and our parents don't. Well, that's going to, like, that's going to just generally change. I mean, I would say that generation X, my generation, whatever, like, you know, we didn't start off having computers in our lives, but we all got Pong and Ataris and moved up from there, Commodore 64. So our generation has been, you know, involved with technology since the very beginning. I don't think that, you know, I think it's important that we make technology approachable for the older generation, but it's just going to eventually not be a problem because my kids use my phone, they use my iPad, they use everything. It's just so natural for them. Yeah, but even ignoring the generational thing, you're going to expect like a, a musician or, or you know, a land surveyor or, you know, somebody like that to grab an Arduino and start programming it to open this garage door for them? No, but what you might have is you might have someone that starts working for a surveyor and says, you know what, I see a niche here. I see something I can address. You know, we can get better positioning of the poles or better surveys if I can do this neat little thing, this neat little electronic device that maybe measures out our paces or like whatever. I'm not well versed in land surveying, obviously. But someone that's actually within that industry, because all of this stuff is so cheap and easy now, they can maybe just start tinkering on their own and they might just hit on it and have that aha moment. And then that maybe that product will take off, right? I think it's just going to open up a new a world of job opportunities and employment opportunities that didn't exist before. And it's kind of going to be like, you know, with website design, everyone was like, oh, I can de- design a web page because I just need Notepad. And then they realize that there's more to it than that. And then all of a sudden, uh, web developers and UX designers, uh, you know, they're hot. They're pretty hot and they've been hot for a long time now. <clears throat> this is going to be the same thing where everyone's going to start around playing with it. But it's going to become advanced. It's going to require, you know, people that have an expertise in that. And that's going to open up some new employment opportunities for the for this generation and the next, um, you know. So I, my, my, my takeaway from it is, you know, if you really are interested in that stuff, start learning it now because you could generate money, you know, through job opportunities later that are going to happen. And as a similar, uh, similar note, I know we were all looking at a video uh, lately of some farmer in Manitoba who used like a Raspberry Pi or Arduino or something and, yeah. and like automated his tractor. So he could, he could drive it around from his, his iPad or something like that, not even in it. That was pretty like cool. Five years ago, something like that for an average farmer, would it would just never be possible. And now that we've got these Raspberry Pis and Arduinos, and it's very kind of like approachable. Uh, you know, a farmer in Manitoba can pick up some of those technologies and start automating his tractors. I thought that was incredibly cool. Yeah. You know, we uh, we joke a lot about Excel, but I see some parallels between this and Excel, too. It's like not everybody's going to sit down at a spreadsheet and, and, you know, do anything useful with it. But it does enable a lot of people to do things that just simply were not possible without, you know, an accounting degree beforehand or some sort of mathematics degree. So, I mean... You can joke all you want. Excel is is massively popular, um, but only for the people that are uh, kind of predisposed to it. So Dylan brings up the thing about the guy that made his own self-driving tractor kind of a thing. Uh, well, we've all know that know or heard about Google and their self-driving cars and how they're experimenting with that. And then there was even an article in the paper about how, in theory the self-driving cars might actually make decisions as to who lives or dies in a serious collision. So for example, you're driving along, the car detects you're about to impact with the school bus, 
and the AI inside your car decides that, you know what, it's better I drive you off the road into the gully and exploding into a great big ball of flame than you hit that school bus and kill a bunch of kids. So this kind of now, I guess, leads naturally into that as to what impact will all this have on self-driving cars and this level of, shall we call it augmented intelligence? I don't want to call it artificial intelligence, but it's more like computers making perhaps questionable decisions that before we delegated solely to the realm of humans. Well, I think that's uh, that particular scenario. I follow the, the autonomous car thing a lot. And that do I kill my driver or do I drive into a school bus of kids? I think that's a total red herring. I mean, that's, that's an impossible decision, whether it's a computer making it or a human making it. I think we just, in our gut, we find it creepy that a computer might be making live or die decisions. But I mean, it's just, that's an impossible decision, no matter how you look at it. There's no really right decision there. Right. But you're, you're going to see the impact of that once the first time, the first time it happens, there's going to be a, a massive backlash against it from people just because yeah. people are, are scared. And don't forget some societies are particularly lawyer happy and will be more than willing to sue and say, you know what, the computer shouldn't have made that decision. It made the wrong decision because hindsight is always twenty twenty. So I agree with you. It's it's a tricky question. There's no right good answer to it. But because now technology is making a decision that has repercussions that will ripple beyond the initial event, right? Yeah, but you gotta you gotta weigh that and balance that. You know, if 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 the the whole U.S. moved to, to self driving cars and it's saving a hundred thousand lives a year because it's so much safer in general, right? The 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 fact that it it's making impossible decisions like that and some people are dying sometimes. I mean, is far outweighed by how many lives it's actually saving. How far off do you think are self-driving cars? Well, I think I follow this pretty closely. And um, I think the my understanding is the technology the technology is there. Tesla, uh, Google, and some of these other companies, they, they could have a car where you can press the take me home button uh, today. It's just we're waiting for the laws to catch up with them. right? The Google cars have dri- driven millions and millions of self-driving miles in California already. Uh, the, the laws just aren't there to allow them to bring it to the public. Like I know even Tesla just released their what they call the autopilot, where when you're on a highway or, or an interstate, uh, it'll do the intelligent cruise control and it'll keep you in your lane. So it's basically self-driving. But even some countries like Hong Kong came and asked Tesla, turn that off in all our cars because we don't, even that level of self-driving, you know, we don't allow that in our laws. I think one of the big challenges though, I mean, it is really the, the law aspect of it, but it, it comes down to that simple question of let's say, Let's let's make it a less dramatic example and not a kid uh, school bus full of kids, but let's just a, a simple car accident. You know, uh, it's dead winter, right? You, two cars slip on a, on a, on a couple p- patches of ice and they bump into each other. So it's a simple car accident, but who's accountable? Because no one was driving. So now who's responsible for damage? Even in in non lawyer, as Tom put it, they're not like lawyer centric or in where I'm going to sue everybody. Um, that kind of environment. Like let's just go down the line of. I need to get my car fixed and I have car insurance, but is it my fault? Or do do car insurance companies now just pay out every single accident because we have automated cars? This is already solved problem. There's already no fault insurance provinces and states where if you're in an accident, it's no one's fault. Both insurance companies pay and everybody pays that way. But it's not universal. Yeah, that's it's not that's universal, but it's a that's a solved problem. It's just a 
regional jurisdiction policy problem, you know, and like Dylan says, you know, if I totally believe as well that automated driving is going to save hundreds of thousands of lives a year, right? Because cars, like, you know, my question about this car hitting the bus scenario is like, well, the automated cars, it's not, it made decisions 15 minutes ago about how it was going to drive, about ambient conditions, it probably will actually never get into a situation where it's going to hit that bus unless it's the bus that's out of control, right? I don't, I don't think that we're going to have these problems with because the computers won't need – they'll have made decisions 15 minutes prior to a potential incident that would have helped it avoid the incident because humans don't think like that. That's assuming that – of the vehicles on the road are self-driving and no one's overriding them and taking control, which you're still allowed to do. And you will be allowed to do because 100% automated cars without the ability to override and take control is ridiculous. So I still think there is that option, you know, that scenario where it's going to have to make a decision on your life or someone else's. There's still going to be loss of life in some way, maybe not to the, the way that it is now, um, but it, it's not going to be, I don't, I don't see a world where it's going to be a hundred percent totally automated and we'll never have to drive again. We'll never need driver's licenses. I think that there'll still be the need for that. I think that world will come where I think, you know, that it's a long way off where it's a hundred percent. But what I find really interesting about the automated cars is what, what it seems like pretty much everybody's predicting is going to happen. Once we have truly autonomous cars, you know, where I can punch in my destination and sit back and read a book and they'll take me there. Uh, they're saying that uh, we'll start to see a shift away away from people owning their own cars. And what you'll see is fleet operators. Uber wants to be one. Tesla wants to be one. Google wants to be one. Uh, where instead of me owning a car, I'll just maybe pay a monthly fee. And whenever I need a car, I press a button on my phone and some automated car comes and picks me up and takes me where I want to go. Uh, right? Because it's going to be much more efficient because that auto, if I own that car and it's a fully autonomous car, when it's parked in my driveway uh, during the day or at night, uh, that could be out driving other people around, right? So I think you're going to see what everybody's predicting is going to happen is you're going to have these fleet operators with big fleets of autonomous cars and people will subscribe to them. And then things like parking, right? Now, you never nobody needs to park anymore, at least using these fleets. That's going to be a huge shift. I think I think that's going to be the future of driving. I like your world, Dylan. I want to live there. Yeah, I look forward to it. I th- <laughs> and I think it's it's not too far off. Like I I think I will have a subscription to a fleet within the next ten years. So I guess we're sort of all in agreement that yeah, this is going to probably impact lives in some ways. You know, like I said, small cuts, small little things over the next five to ten years. What kind of skills do you sort of, do you guys sort of feel that would be necessary for someone that wants to dive into this? I mean, before it was easy, right? You pick a stack like Microsoft, you learn a programming language or two or three, you know, C sharp, HTML, JavaScript, and then away you go, you know, get a job, profit. But this whole computing futures that we're talking about sort of changes the dynamic because now you don't just need, say, software skills. It sounds to me a bit like you're going to need to be familiar a little bit with hardware, a little bit with software, a little bit with user experience, uh, that kind of a thing. And maybe even other things, more overreaching skills like legal. you know, And entrepreneurial things like uh, accounting and running a business and marketing. I think those are uh, things that a right. lot of entrepreneurs now 
uh, miss out on. Well, I think right. this is what Laurie was sort of saying about all of this accessibility to innovation. Like I can build a prototype device. I can build a prototype service. I can build all of these prototypes, but there's still a vast skill set that's required to polish it, make it usable, make it resilient. And an individual is not going to have those, all those technical skills. And then Kyle's leading. It's like, well, now it's a business. Well, Who's got an MBA? Who's what average IoT guy's got an MBA or something comparable to help them actually run a business? I think it's going to be awesome that we've got these little things that people are using to generate ideas and sort of test them and sort of validate them, but not they're not quite commercially viable yet. And that's where all this job skills that you know we're sort of talking about, which would be valuable in that ecosystem, will really start to play out. So maybe there's a delineation here between the, I guess, entrepreneurial slash prototyping stage versus the bringing it to market stage, commercializing it. Yeah, well, it's not different <clears throat> than now, right? You got, you, you know, you got the the hobbyist people and it's great that it's making it to like, you, you know, that farmer automating his tractor is a hobbyist that is accessible and he can do that. But that's very different than big business developing this, you know, for wide deployment. And when you're talking, you know, big business using this technology, for wider adoption, uh, it's no different than today when people will specialize. You probably won't have the same person doing the hardware design as you do programming the big data back end, right? So I, I think it's just a matter of, of where do you want to focus your skill sets and what do you enjoy doing? Yeah, I think that just to extend that point a little bit further for Dylan, I think that's 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 a really good idea. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be experts in picking your problem set and how you want to apply technology to that problem set rather than I'm a great C sharp developer, or I'm a real great HTML developer. It's going to, you're going to focus in on how do I apply a technology, whether it's um, Raspberry Pis or web or whatever you're using to solve a problem, like whether it's a self-driving car or making sure my house doesn't get flooded, like whatever problems that you want to uh, enhance or solve. I think that uh, in terms of skills, I'm not sure I agree that you will need all that much because it seems uh, that many, many people with just a little bit of hardware knowledge or a little bit of, of software can do lots of stuff, lots of stuff. And then, of course, if they want to go into business or get a job or something, but I think the, uh, the entry barrier, the, the minimum you need is way lower than before. And that's why, that's why competition, competition grows so much. I think the important part is the the business aspect of it. Really, it's you can build a prototype so easily now. The hard part I've found is getting it to market and getting in front of people, getting in front of the right people, and getting people to realize that they want it. That's why I think, like Laurie's point, there's going to be tons of jobs that emerge out of this. There's the pervasiveness of people to experiment, to build something, to try it, to solve their own problems, which. Maybe a million people have, maybe 10 people have, but now we can actually just have this little, this culture that's just like, I'm going to solve my problem. Technology solves problems and I can do all that work. So we have these uh, little jobs that we can, that, that we need to know. We need to know a little bit of electrical and a little bit of coding and things like that. What about new jobs? Like what, are there any new jobs that might come out of this? Well, like, I don't know if there's, I mean, I don't know if there's like, a net new discipline. I think there's probably going to be advances within disciplines. Like, you know, when we talk about IoT and the connected house and maybe a smart agent, an intelligent agent that knows how to optimize a house, 
And now there's an agent that optimizes electrical grid systems that all these little agents talk to. So, I mean, you know, big data, AI, or even augmented intelligence, um, those are disciplines that, you know, there's just not a lot of people in right now, but I think there'll be big demand. It's just new specialties, right? It's not necessarily whole new jobs, it's new specialties. You know, like five years ago, not many people had heard of big data, right? Now it's a whole kind of subsection of the industry that you can specialize in and there's lots of jobs for you. But it's not like a whole new job. You're still the programmer doing programmer type stuff. Uh, it's just a new way to specialize. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I guess that kind of so we're sort of so we're saying I see here for skills is that maybe we're going to see a resurgence of maybe like a, a or a, the appearance of a renaissance man of computing, so to speak, a guy who knows a lot of little things and can tie it all together to make it viable, as opposed to, I guess you know these days you. It used to be people always looking for the web superstar. Maybe the emphasis is less on that and more of the well-rounded individual. Is that kind of what we're going with here? So I have a six-year-old son. What do I tell him to do when he goes to university? Buy a Raspberry Pi. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want advice from me. I dropped out of university. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's hard to say though, right? Because um, my wife, who's a teacher, literally says the the, the problem that education faces is you're training kids today for jobs that don't exist. So like when I was a kid, there was no such thing as a mobile programmer or a web programmer. And even programming in and of itself was kind of a black art that was limited to big businesses and uh, scientific labs. But yet somehow, you know, back in the 70s, schools had to prepare me with the skills and the, the ability to eventually fall into this world of computer programming. So to tell your six-year-old son right now, well, this is what you need to do in order to do this 20 years from now, it's I don't know if that's a reasonable thing to do. Uh, well, I mean, just right now, like next week is the computer science week and their hour of code where I know I am, but I don't know how many other of us are going to go out and teach kids about programming as a, as a future skill set. And one of the things that I'm going to talk to these, you know, grade two, grade four year old kids about is like, look at the, look at your thermostat, look at your phone, look at your computers, look at your Xboxes, look at your fridges or your, devices that are all around you they all need programming skills i don't know if i'd make a huge distinction between i think mobile programming is a skill but i'm not sure i think that the fundamental underlying skills is if you have a developer you can go into those specialties because it's basically experience with a platform or experience with a framework or something so i you know i think hour of code getting kids involved with programming is going to be you know positioning them as expecting that we need to talk humans need to talk somehow to these physical devices we need to get them to do things for us and the programming language the programming skill is right now our primary mechanism to do that i think tom that probably what what you referred to is to learning a particular technology or particular tool right now it's uh, probably going to be out of date very soon but Going back to what Dave just said, I think that we we may be going back a bit to, to the science of computer science that keep going with, with uh, the bases and algorithms and how to solve problems mostly, but not particularly using one tool, right? That we, we experience, I think all of us experience this, that see many new developers with experience in just a few tools 
but they cannot go outside that, right? Or, or they cannot do mobile if they don't understand what concurrency is or uh, how uh, how to do, how to lock a resource so nobody's overwriting it when you're using it, things like that. Right now, more than never before, we need to understand. So one of the some of the skills that I think that we don't, we sort of touch on them a little bit, but we don't still don't talk about them that much is like skills around privacy and security. Like I think one of the things that's going to start to be a skill set that we really need to focus on is going to be kind of what might be the dark side of what this whole IoT revolution is going to be. Because now we're going to have millions of devices that are connected to and spitting out data that is personal or attributable to an individual, you know, and we are going to need to start to really focus on those skills about how do you make data secure? How do you make data private? How do you secure communications? And I think that some of those are skill sets are going to be super important in this whole new revolution of data. That's a really good point. One of the things uh, moving over to a public institution for me was um, learning a lot more about things like, or in being in healthcare, um, learning about things like HIPAA um, in the U.S. and FIPA, like the Freedom of Information, and I think it's Protection or Freedom of Information Protection of Privacy Act that we have in Canada, and um, like the and FIA, the Patient Health Information Act. So it's different things that you know, different policies and governments in place that need to allow for, uh, you know, where we store data. So, you know, when we do research on like, so medical research is a great example. When you canvas a thousand patients, you know, where do you put their names and the results of all their medical information? And the answer to a lot of people, because they're keeping up with technologies, they just want to throw it into the cloud. It becomes a huge challenge. And that is a huge problem that we see now. So, I'm curious on, yeah, like, like where, where do people get those skills if not working in those trenches now? I don't know if those are skills so much as a, society, a question more for society to answer. Um, to take it even one step further, I know some schools here in Edmonton, there was a lawsuit because all the schools have Wi-Fi. And some of the parents were saying, we don't want our children exposed to Wi-Fi because of health concerns. So what, 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 what wins out there? Does the fact that, you know, Wi-Fi is very useful and helpful to a lot of people versus, you know, there are some people that are sensitive to electromagnetic frequencies and that kind of a thing, and they just can't be around this stuff for whatever reason. So, you know, how do you balance that? So the other, I think, where I think it is a skill set to kind of counterbalance, just again, you know, uh, would be this. Um, as a developer, I'm developing a prototype with my Raspberry Pi that's going to monitor... Um, it's going to be a wearable that monitors body temperature and stuff like that and, and blood glucose. And I'm going to store all that in the cloud. I'm a developer. I'm prototyping this. So it's going to just pull all this data up into the cloud. Now, as a frontline person in the code, maybe you have a company that's going to, supposed to be looking out for you and they give you that spec. But being the developer and being the technical expert, shouldn't you have that knowledge as well to have that conversation? So in your example with the Wi-Fi, having a network person who understands this, the health concerns and, and stuff like that. But again, being able to bring, bring this kind of conversation up and have a, have a context of being that technical expert to understand um, what is actually going on and be able to explain that to people that don't have that knowledge 
and also with respect to the Privacy Act stuff and, and big data, um, being able to explain it to people that, you know, when you take a picture with your phone, it's gone. Or when you upload something to Facebook, it's not yours anymore. I mean, it kind of is, but it really isn't. It's now in the ether. And as developers and technical experts, not necessarily you don't have to be a coder, but it's a skill set to understand that throughput rather than just being really infatuated with the technology where I did this really cool thing and made pictures go into Facebook or made my blood sugar go into the cloud. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I guess maybe to, to further emphasize my point is there are going to be non-technical people, right? Or let's call them late adopters, I guess, to sort of tie it in with the start of our conversation. They will be kind of swept into this inadvertently. Um, another example would be smart meters. Okay. A lot of places are utility companies are going around and sticking smart meters that just automatically broadcast your, your energy usage. And there are some people that are saying, no, I don't want these things. Come and read my meter the old fashioned way. And they're saying it because uh, like there's horror stories out there of smart meters misreporting your usage. So people are getting bills in the thousands of dollars where before they were in the tens or hundreds. And again, it gets down to the electromagnetic frequency thing or the fact that some people are just distrustful of technology. And so now you have this utility company saying, well, no, you have to have the smart meter because it makes our business better. But you have the consumer that's saying, no, I don't want the smart meter. I'm paying you for energy. I'm not paying you for how efficiently you can read my meter. So why can't you just someone out, send someone out to read my meter? Right. So you have this technological decision that was made by a utility company, which is probably you know more on the high tech side of things. And then you might have you know, some older couple that decides that's scared of technology or they don't want the technology, but they're being told, no, in order to exist in this community, you have to adopt this meter, whether or not you want it. So I, I see some of the same things with like insurance companies. So um, uh, I've heard, I've heard of, of some car insurance company in the States somewhere where they uh, told their customers, hey, if you put this device in your car that tracks how fast you're driving and, and where you are, and you agree not to speed, and we will monitor you, we'll give you cheaper insurance. I think I've, I've heard, I don't know if it actually happened or they were just talking about doing it with home insurance where people had these uh, Nest thermostats and, and Nest smoke alarms where if we let, if you let us monitor your stuff and you don't turn your thermostat down too low to freeze your pipes in the winter and your smoke alarms always have their batteries in it, we will give you cheaper insurance in exchange for you know letting us violate your privacy. I think as long as you have the choice, I, th I think I'm okay with that. I don't think I'd actually want to do that. I think that seems like a huge invasion of privacy. But as long as it's a choice that we can make and there's a benefit for it, right? If I let them monitor me, I'm going to get cheaper insurance. I'm sure some it. people would, would make that yeah. choice. But that's that's different. Say like everyone needs heat, especially up here in Canada anyway. And the utility company comes in and says, no, to get the energy to run however you heat your house, you have to have this smart meter. And you say no then you're turning down the product and the service that they're providing. I mean, but you don't have a choice because utilities are a monopoly. And so now you're having sort of the, the high-tech nerds making this decision of how you will receive the product. And really, you're not paying for, well, actually, you do pay for the delivery of the product. But you've sort of lost the option to say, you know what, I just want to keep things the way they are. It does work. It may be not as efficient, but it does work in terms well, of what I'm paying you for. But I think that's probably... A a judiciary or a government policy thing, because I think right now, if, if NMAX pisses me off, I can go to, I don't know, the Alberta government, some agency and say, Hey, look, they're not treating me well, or they're not treating me appropriately. 
you know, but so if government policy changes, it forced people to have to use smart meters versus forcing utility companies to provide these old services. I mean, that's a government problem. But I, I view that as less invasive than like my, my monitoring my car example, right? Like if my energy company wants to monitor my electricity usage, I mean, they do that already, just not a re- real time, like a smart meter. But I mean, me personally, my gut, I mean, that doesn't feel like a big invasion of privacy versus like my car insurance company monitoring where my car is and how fast I'm driving. That that bothers me. My energy company monitoring my energy usage in real time, eh, doesn't really bother me. Well, they for can do new, it anyways. For new houses, is it mandatory? They have to tell you that they're monitoring that? I don't think there's any law that says they have to, but I don't think... But let's imagine new house or new whatever and... They install it and they don't tell you anything. Yeah. See, I know with mine, the way it sort of reads is that you have to allow them access to the meter to read it. So it doesn't say anything that I have to take the smart meter. I didn't complain when they installed it. And I wouldn't you know, turn around now and say, get rid of the smart meter. But, and I think with new houses, they just do it by default. So they don't give you the option. So I don't know if it's mandatory. Or if you have the option, you know, if you were building and you were to say, get rid of the smart meter, I just want to stick with the old fashioned kind. Or have those meters that, uh, well, they're half smart and they can be close to your house and read it, but they need to come anyways, right? Well, they have to come to a certain distance, right? Usually they can just come to the property line. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, I mean, there, there is a bit of a dark side to this where now all of this technology and computing power is penetrating our society, but it's going to sneak into things that we didn't see it before. And it might raise a whole bunch of um, social questions as to, is this an appropriate use of the technology, I guess is kind of my point to all this. You know, we're talking about just an aversion to technology versus an aversion to my information being transmitted into the ether and being used by somebody for something that I'm not aware of. Like the smart meters thing is like, oh, I don't like Wi-Fi, so turn off the Wi-Fi. Well, the utility company has the permission to monitor your usage, just make well, it easier or hard to get to it. But, but for example, here in Alberta, the power companies actually came under fire because they have been, they were accused, and I guess it was proven, that they were gaming the system and shutting off power plants to cause a spike in demand at critical times when the power cost of power was high so that they could make more money. Right. So who's to say, taking it to an extreme, they're not going to monitor a power and say, okay, at 2 p.m. on a July afternoon, everyone's going to have their AC turned down. So we'll take a power plant down. That'll drive up the demand, which will drive up the price, and we can make buckets of money. How does taking a power plant down drive up demand? Uh, because you have less you have less supply. So how does that it drive change up the demand? demand? Sorry. Yeah, I misspoke. It doesn't change the demand. It, it, it changes the usage. So you have less supply an increased demand because of the seasonal variances, which drives up the price. And this has happened in Alberta. Well, it's, it's about how the Alberta power system works. So the less, right, power but- there, the less power there is in Alberta, on an hourly, hour by hour basis, the pricing changes. So if you turn yes. off a plant, you've reduced the amount of power in the pool and all power is more expensive. Right. And this is my point, is that now these companies will have the information to play these kind of dirty games and dirty tricks. So it's an example of on the surface, it sounds like what's the problem, but remember, not everyone is nice. There are jerks out there in the world. But they already, they can do this already. They already know exactly how much power they're using. Yep. Maybe not down to a house. Maybe not down to a house, but they can make a pretty good guess, right? 
like they know exactly how much is flowing through the whole system and where it's coming from and where it's going. Like there's a lot yeah. of IOT in the energy sector. Yeah. Like SCADA systems are SCADA, this, yeah. all this stuff is not new. SCADA is yeah. power systems, oil systems, distribution systems, like just devices firing information into these large aggregators that are being used. Now it's just coming into the commercial space. And, you know, SCADA systems are expensive and they're, it's a defined standard. You know, now we've got all of these different things, just firing little JSON packets of information all over the place. Yeah. So I guess maybe we can just sort of best sum this up as just because necessarily we can do something, we need to also be mindful of how something will be used. I mean, sure, these make things, this, this pervasive use of technology and the way computing is going will make a lot of things easier and better in a lot of ways, but it'll introduce some other things that perhaps people need to sort of keep their eye on. Is that kind of a good way to sum it up? Is everyone sort of happy with that conclusion? I think so. Yeah. So anyway, we could probably go on this ad nauseum for quite a while still, because there are other things that we didn't really touch on. But I guess we kind of do sort of need to bring this to an end. Um, maybe some of the other topics like augmented reality and virtual reality, we can bounce to another session or what have you, or save for a round of scotches at the next Prairie DevCon or whatever, whenever we get together kind of a thing. Donald can bring the scotch and I'll bring a microphone. <laughs> and I'll bring an empty glass. There we go. Problem solved. <laughs> I'm not sure we so. could publish that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gotta, gotta roll the dice sometimes yeah so yeah I guess we'll just bring this one to a close then you know it's we just sort of touched the surface here a bit but thanks for coming in and listening and maybe we'll have a version 2 of this sometime in the future maybe see how things actually panned out thanks a lot bye guys bye thanks guys a lot. thank bye you guys.